Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 29. And the last time that we met, we were talking about taxation of real estate. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was to, uh, we were talking about tax sales. In other words, I think we sort of left off or were, you know, kind of a little bit before the end of the show, we were talking about where properties were being sold because the property taxes had not been paid. And in the textbook, they showed you a page of, I believe it was the Los Angeles uh, County website uh, for where they had this tax sale information. So what I want to do today is I'm going to be showing you very quickly what that website is in Sacramento so that you would have an idea. And uh, as I've mentioned many times before, when I show these websites to you, you may very, and these are in Blackboard, by the way, you may very well find out that when you go to click on it, uh, say sometime in the future, if you happen to bookmark it for future reference, that the county or the city or whoever the organization is may very well change the location of the information. So you kind of want to keep that in mind. Uh, most of the time, the state or the, let's say the governmental organizations usually do not change things unless they have a really a major overhaul on their websites. But there's occasionally they will do that. So uh, you, you kind of want to uh, remember that. Also remember that you can find this information out very easily by going to Google and just putting in like Sacramento County property tax sales or something along that line. You'll get to the uh, appropriate website. In fact, Google as a search engine, happens to be really, really great. In fact, I use it for doing things like looking up error codes in, uh, that I receive from Windows or Linux or whatever. Really great search engine can help you find things very quickly. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to I'm going to go through that uh, with the with the uh, property tax sales. I'm going to talk a little bit about the special assessments, which is the uh, Melarus and the uh, Bond Act. So you're just a little bit familiar with that. And then I believe we're going to be moving on to something called documentary transfer tax stamps. In that case, I'm going to be going back to, I think it's about chapter two and pulling, I think it's chapter two and pulling up a grant deed to show you on the grant deed where these tax stamps are located. So you're familiar with that. And then I believe we're going to be talking about um, IRS or Internal Revenue Service uh, tax regulations regarding the sale uh, of a, both a personal residence and also a uh, income-producing property, uh, what the capital gains effect on that's going to be, and also what you can or cannot deduct from your income taxes regarding expenses, if you will, on a yearly basis. So we'll talk about that. And then if time permits, I think I'll go back and show you a couple things that are on the Internet uh, regarding uh, future references or future research, if you will, if you want to find out more information, especially with taxes and the Internal Revenue Service. They have some really great free-of-charge uh, booklets and handouts that are in a PDF format that you can download and read or print or whatever, and it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, so anyway, what I'm going to do is move over here in a second to the document camera. I'm going to point something out, then I'm going to go back to the... Uh, uh, the computer and the website and show you where the Sacramento site is located. Uh, anyway, what I wanted to do is in the book they had this uh, page which discussed or talked about the, uh, the uh, ta property tax sales and I believe, if I remember correctly, this was for the, uh, the county of Los Angeles. Let me see if I can see that really. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it's San Diego County. So uh, 
at San Diego, notice that it's San Diego County Treasurer slash Tax Collector's website. And I want you to notice that, uh, you know, the site may be a little bit different than what you'll see in Sacramento, but a lot of the information that you're going to see here and in Sacramento is pretty much the same. Uh, I'm going to move down over here to the uh, left area right in uh, here to show you something. And then I'll show you on the Sacramento site where it's located. So, for example, on this site you'll have things such as, uh, you know, rights of redemption. So if the property is possibly going to be, uh, uh, you haven't been paying your uh, property taxes on it, what rights do you have as far as paying them back and then getting the property back? Terms and conditions, bidder registration, if you're going to be a bidder, payment cards, uh, payment information, credit sales. The point here is all of the information you want to know about tax sales in general is located right here with links. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you over here to the, Sac uh, to the Sacramento County website and show you where the same sort of information is located there for your own reference. And I'm going to switch a couple things here. I'm going to be going to your Blackboard website for the class. This is located under website links. So I'm going to go down here. And I'm going to go to the chapter on tax sales, which is located right here. And just as a point of reference, uh, and I'll talk about this if time permits, I have a little link here to the uh, Homeowner and Renter Assistance Volunteer Program that we discussed. This happens to be the link to the Sacramento County property tax sales. This is the link to an IRS publication that deals with selling your home. Now, remember, if I put a link in here, this is what the current laws or regulations are. The Internal Revenue Service is always updating information, but I wanted to give you an idea where this is. They have a wonderful site that has just tons of stuff that's free. And then this is the IRS publication for the uh, sale of a rental type of property, such as a single-family home or a duplex or a condo that you may have. So anyway, I'm going to go here to the Sacramento County. I'm going to be changing the size of some of the things here. Just want you to point point out that this is called the Tax Collection and Licensing Site. Uh, again, they have it looks sort of the same. It's Sacramento County. On the left hand side here, they have home and some information that you can find out. And I'll be blowing this up here in a minute. Uh, what I want to do is I'll see if I can walk you through this uh, sort of. Uh, they have in here such as things as frequently asked questions. So if you want to know some information such as, and I'm going to change the size of the font here so that it's larger now, so it looks better on TV. Uh, if you go down here, property tax frequently, so if you, uh, it'll have things like, can I get a tax bill amounts and status online? Can you do that online? Uh, I am a new owner. What property taxes do I owe? So they'll have things like that. Uh, how can I obtain a copy of my tax bill? How can I pay my tax bill? Uh, so on and so forth. So they'll have all of these links. And this is all one page, by the way. If you go down here, when you click on these links, it'll take you down into this area down here. So it'll step you through, for example, it says in here, I am a new owner, what property taxes do I owe? So they'll go through what this is. Uh, let me see if I can zoom down here a little bit. 
I pay taxes uh, to my mortgage company. Why did I get a tax bill? We talked about this the last time. Um, I am a, a senior citizen, blind or disabled. What property tax assistance can I get? So it's located right here. Uh, forms and assistance if you need it. This is the one that we talked about here, which is the property tax postponement for senior citizens, blind and disabled people. So again, this is a good place to start your research for that. Um, again, forms and information. Uh, this is a link right here to Proposition 13. So if you want to know what Proposition 13 is about, it has details in here. Proposition 8, which was another one. Uh, how do I dispute and assess value? So if you had a, an issue with that and you thought that your property taxes were too high, this tells you how to take care of that. Uh, the, the bottom line is, is all of the things, the county has done a really nice job of all of the different types of general questions that either you or your client may have or may want to know some information about after you've uh, bought your home or if you have any kind of problem at all. It's a good place to start. The uh, county has been doing a really good job of providing that kind of information, and they continue I think is part of their mission to uh, improve the services to the community. They're doing a really, really good job. Most of the municipal organizations are working real hard uh, to do that for you, to make it really easy and put stuff online. And what's really nice when they do things online, it means that it also helps them cut down their costs a little bit because if you can kind of find what you're looking for, uh, that means maybe that's a few less people I have to hire to answer the phone. So there, there is a way of helping to cut costs back. So anyway, I'm going to uh, remove this, and what I want to do now is just talk about a little bit of these two acts. I'm going to change, I have got to change a couple things here, electronic gizmos here, and for the people in the room, okay, one more, I think, and I should be there. There I go, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, zoom back out here. They talk here about a couple of the acts that you may want to be familiar with. Uh, the first one they talk about is something called the uh, Street Improvement uh, Act of 1911. There's also a 1915. It says, according to the Street Improvement Act of 1911, developers can use the act to construct and improve streets and sewers, uh, sewer construction. However, they cannot use the act to purchase land for subdividing. The point here is, is that what I really want you to sort of know about is that when you are getting ready to sell a property, list a property for sale, or maybe you're working with a buyer to help them buy the property, to realize that there are going to possibly be some bonds that may be on the property with, where they were created to fund or to help pay for the improvements. Now, what you need to know about if you're working with a client is that, first of all, if you're listing the property for sale, you need to make sure you're talking to the owner and that you disclose that in the listing agreement that this act exists, what the bonds amount are, and what the payments are. And also, too, a lot of times people want to know, is it possible to pay it off or how, long, how much longer is it going to last? If you're, on the other hand, working with the buyer, you, as the agent representing the buyer, want to be able to let you tell the buyer, oh, by the way, there's some bonds on here. You're going to have to make some additional payments 
beyond your property, your principal interest taxes and insurance, you're going to have to pay this additional fee on your bonds. So you want to keep that in mind. The next one that we talked about, I believe, the last time was something called Melarus. Uh, and again, I'll sort of reiterate this again and I'll read through this and talk about it a little bit. It says, Melarus Community Facility Act is another type of investment improvement bond. A subdivider want, uh, I'm sorry, a subdivider wanted to subdivide his property into many lots and sell individual to potential builders of single family homes to finance the off-site improvements, which include streets, sidewalks, and schools, he would institute or initiate a Melarus municipal bond. Okay? And so, again, and they talk about this in the literature. In fact, there's another, uh, if you will, there's another page here in the book that goes a little bit more into detail about the Melarus, talks about this. Now, up where again, up where I live, which is in El Dorado County, El Dorado Hills, I happen to pay this. Okay, I pay this, and the reason why I pay this is because when I bought my property, they had just probably maybe four or five years ago had actually divided the land or subdivided the land and put the streets and the curbs and the gutters in. Again, when you go to the county who are really nice people, you know, they'll say, hey, it's nice you want to do the subdividing, but we don't have any money to pay for that. So the developer is the one that has these bonds or, or works on creating these bonds, raising the money to pay for those fees or to pay for that infrastructure improvement. What happens then, and like in my particular case when I bought my property, I have to take over and continue to pay that bond. And in some cases, it's not cheap. <laughs> okay, I think in my case, it's somewhere around $350, $360 a month for that bond. Now, the house that I used to live in, same sort of area, maybe three miles away, I didn't have that. Why? Because there was no streets, curbs, and gutters. I'm sorry, there was streets, curbs, and gutters, but they had already been put in. In fact, in that case, they were funded at the time underneath, I believe, the 1911 or 15 Bond Act, but they, the bonds were much smaller and they were paid off in many cases before I actually came to the picture and actually bought my property. So these are something, and the seller has to disclose it to the buyer, and the buyer needs to be made aware of, and you need to know on both cases to make sure that the, the buyer of the property is aware of this and what the costs are. Um, I'm just going to bring this back down again. Um, let me see if I can get this down. Anyway, this first part just talks about the Melarus, you know, what we've discussed here, the act itself. Uh, it talks about the fact that it's helped developers because it's helped them to turn around and finance those infrastructure projects that they need to. If they didn't have this ability, remember, under Proposition 13, they're limited to 1% uh, taxes. The sale, this, I'm sorry, the taxes, the base taxes on a property is 1% of the sales price. So they wouldn't have that additional funding. So this allows them to raise money that way. Down here, it just tells you that the primary responsibility for disclosure of any Melarus bonds lies with the seller. And then this is something at the time that you would take the listing as the agent to make sure you would ask that question. Probably if you've worked in the area, in the area where the property is sold, because most agents usually work in certain geographical areas, you would probably at least know that this exists. 
And if the house next door had it, but your client's house didn't, you would start to question. And you, you know, and you may actually call the county and get some additional information so you could provide it to the buyer or put it in the listing agreement. Okay. Um, down below, the last thing here, and I think this is sort of important, it says warning. Whereas property taxes are totally deductible from the state and federal income taxes, Melarus ta- taxes may only be partially deduct- deductible depending upon whether they are for maintenance or improvements. Consult with a CPA before claiming any such deduction. And what's important about that is that you as, a, uh, as an agent be very, very careful whenever you're dealing with anybody about talking about whether something is tax deductible or not. Uh, that's a whole other area of, uh, if you will, of expertise. And uh, I've been around this for many, many years. And guess what? I have a regular accountant that does my taxes every year. I call him up when I have questions. He's doing in the neighborhood of six to eight hundred or nine hundred returns a year. He probably is running across a question that I may very well have and currently right now, and it's well worth it to have that person. Uh, having to give tax advice, especially without having the full knowledge of what the client is dealing with, in other words, sitting down and looking at all their income tax statements and having that knowledge of where they're at, there's no way you can get render any kind of advice one way or the other. That's why it's important to let that tax person help your client understand what's going on. And if in doubt and your accountant needs some additional information, you may very well find yourself calling the county tax assessor or tax collector and asking for additional information about that bond and finding out and then providing that to your uh, to your accountant. The next thing we want to talk about is property tax uh, transfer taxes. And uh, this happens to be something that is in your book already. I'm going to pull this out of the page here. And uh, I'm going to point out here on the uh, book, if you will, before I go there, what they're doing here is they're, let me see where this essentially starts. Um, okay, Melarus, okay, transfers, okay. We'll go back here, transfers. Acquisition and transfers. Okay. Okay, acquisition. says alienation is the opposite of acquisition. Acquisition means to acquire, buy, or pull in, whereas alienation means to transfer, sell, or push away. What they're doing here is they're saying a sale is the means by which real estate is usually transferred, usually. Okay. A sale is most familiar way of transferring property, but it is not the only way. Uh, the, the seven different ways to transfer real property are, and let me see what page, oh, this was out of another, another uh, part of the chapter. But what I want to do here, I picked up the wrong page here, is to talk about the transfer taxes. If I can get the right page up here, which is this. If you can remember way, 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 way back, we talked about the document called the grant deed. And we said that in most cases, when you sell a property, you normally would use something called a grant deed. And we talked a lot about the grant deed. We said a grant deed had some certain kind of warranties in it, like you warranty the fact 
that uh, you haven't had any other encumbrances or liens and encumbrances against the property. You're warranting the fact that you actually own the property. So we talked about that. That was way back in that area. But one of the things in here, and the reason why I want to show you this is because this is where you see those taxes are actually collected. So up here in this box on the grant deed is a little itty-bitty box, and I'm going to blow this way, 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 way up so you can see it because I don't even think you can see it without a naked eye without this special camera here, is that this is the documentary transfer tax stamps. This is put on by the county, and of course, you know, again, the counties or the cities can change around where they put it on the form, but the idea is that I want to show it to you. This shows you that you have a documentary transfer tax of $33. That's what's being charged to the client, to who's ever recording the document. There's two different ways that they calculate that. One is what we call computed on the full value of the property conveyed. There's also another check mark here that says, or computed on the full value less liens and encumbrances remaining at the time of the sale. Here's what that means. When I say that it's computed on the full value of the property conveyed means to me, this is what it means, that the property was sold to somebody the person that bought the property got a brand new loan. They did not assume any existing financing on the property at all. In other words, they got a brand new loan from like Wells Fargo or Bank of America. They, those proceeds went into escrow. At the time escrow was closed, those funds went and paid off that existing loan. Okay, that's what we're talking about. The second box down here where it says, or computed on the full value, less liens and encumbrances remaining at the time of the sale. If that box is checked, means that it was an assumption. That's what that means. It means that you bought the property, and what happened is that there were some liens such as a deed of trust. So, for example, on the first one, if I sold the property for $100,000, it's $1.10 per thousand or 100 times $1.10 or $110 is what it would cost in documentary transfer tax stamps. On the other hand, if I had a $100,000 piece of property but I had a $50,000 loan against it, it would mean that I assumed the existing loan and I put down $50,000 or I had another deed or another second deed of trust. So what I would do is I would only be paying that based on on exactly what it says here, or computed on the full value less the liens and encumbrances, which would mean the full value of 100,000 minus the deed, or the, the deed of trust, which was 50, which means I'm only paying the taxes on the $50,000 that was transferred, which instead of being $110 would be $55. Just a key thing I want to kind of keep you guys in mind of what that happens to be, okay? And it's a way, it's an, also another way that when you're, if you happen to be getting yourself ready to go out and list a property for sale with a client and you contact a title insurance company to get uh, something we call a property profile, which normally would include a copy of the grant deed, the deed of trust, a plat map, a tax roll, and a bunch of other information like school districts and stuff like that, comparables, which is, by the way, a free service by the t uh, title companies. You could look at that grant deed and look at where the check mark is, and you would know at that point whether the people actually bought it and paid full full value for it, you know, and got a brand new loan, 
which mean that you should be looking to see if there's an existing deed of trust that was recorded in their name after. Or if you saw the other box checked, you would be able to say, you know, you would know that the property was bought and there was an assumption. They assumed some financing. So that's what we're talking about. So now that I've got that out of the way, okay, the next thing that we want to talk about is the two other taxes that they discuss, which is gift and inheritance tax. Now, again, this is something that you probably would be aware of as a real estate agent, but there is really not a lot that you can do with it. It's that you're aware of it. Now, what we talk about is, is, is uh, while living, a federal gift tax means that your somebody is going to give something to somebody. And if they exceed a certain limitation, there's going to be a tax that they're going to have to pay on that gift. Okay, and we'll talk about that in a second. The other kind of a tax they talk about, so... You, you may be involved where somebody may talk about the fact that they're going to be giving their property to their son or their daughter. That's where you may be involved in that. And then, and then there's got to be a consideration because the accountant is working with them and, and how they're going to go about doing that. On the other hand, if you have federal estate taxes, you're talking about you're working with an estate in which the estate has gotten to be a certain size where it is due, it's gotten to be large enough where there is some kind of inheritance tax due, okay? And you may be involved typically where that might be a probate sale or it might be an estate sale where the people have left a lot of property in their will. The will's being probated. There's a tremendous amount of equity in this estate and maybe you're called into the picture to actually list the house and sell it. And you're just hearing these words such as inheritance tax and, or, you know, those kinds of things. So you, you just, that's where you would be, be aware of it, if you will. Now, just for just general information, because it's very, very important that we don't look at this stuff as saying, you know, this is the, uh, the rule or the law. But let me just point out what this is. The federal gift tax. Again, what we're trying to do is just make you aware of this, not an expert. Uh, it goes on, it says, frequently an individual family matures, the value of the real property owned by the family increases, and, uh, and the owning family may consider bestowing it as a gift. Or as many times people that, you know, when they get to an estate, where, I mean, for example, Bill Gates is giving away his money now. Uh, Warren Buffett is giving his money away now. Stanford University was, uh, Leland Stanford donated that property. So there are people that have large estates that decide that they want to bequeath or give property away. That could be to an institution, it could be to a charity, or it could be to family members. Okay. Um, when a family gives property, whether real or personal, to another individual, there may, notice the word may be, gift taxes that must be paid. If the value of the property is higher than an exempted amount, the donor may pay a gift tax. A donor is the person or persons, and let's finish this off, person or persons, giving the property as a gift. So that's who the donor is. Generally, people give their property away to relatives on a systematic basis. In other words, I'm going to give you so much per year, or maybe the husband and wife together I'll give you my, I'll give you 10,000 and my wife will give you 10,000. That's what we're talking about. 
uh, systematic basis so the taxes are avoided. A donee is the person or persons who receive the property as a gift. The federal gift tax also provides for an $11,000 annual exemption per donee. That's just a number. Uh, that, you know, again, with any of these numbers that the Internal Revenue Service has or anybody gives you, keep in mind that that happens to be as of the date that this book rolled off the press. Again, this is where if you're going to be doing something like this, this is an, this is an estate planning activity. What you're attempting to do in many cases is to usually reduce the size of your estate so that there's going to be less of it is going to be subject to income taxes or to estate taxes, or you want to basically start giving property or your client does to their children or to somebody else while they're alive so they know where it's going, they have control over it, they make sure that they get it. Okay. The other kind of a tax that you may run into is something called a federal estate tax. Now, here it says a federal estate tax return must be filed on an estate, on an estate of every resident of the United States whose gross estate exceeds $1 million, $1,502,000, million in 2006, a value of the death. Estate exemptions will gradually increase the size of the estates that are exempt from $1 million to be repealed in 2010. So they're talking about repealing this. Okay? Then they go on, they say, however, estate tax can be restored in 2011. Again, this is just something I want you to be aware of. You know, that there is the possibility that somebody could be working with it and be owing some kind of money, some kind of an estate, and that's a whole other avenue where you're going to come in is not advising them. You're going to be just coming in because you're going to be maybe working with the accountant or the attorney trying to list and sell the property, and they're going to be using these words. You're not going to be advising. You're just going to be aware of that. And many times, if you're going to specialize in that area, it tends to be something that is a long-term thing. In other words, you may work with people that specialize in settling estates, and they may be approaching you in the beginning wanting to know what the value of the property happens to be and how you would go about marketing it and get the best value, and you would know how long it takes to do that. Okay, so that's where you would come in. Now, the next thing we wanted to do was talk about something called federal and state income tax. Federal and state income tax. All of us that live in California have federal tax we pay, and we have state income tax that we pay. And so we want to be aware of this and what uh, what's all involved with this. Uh, let me make sure I get my pages so I don't get so messed up that I won't know where I'm at. Okay. Uh, one of the things um, that they do is they give you a little list here, and again, you know, I keep cautioning you with this tax stuff. We got, you have to constantly, uh, be vigilant and making sure that, you know, you're not working with out of date information, uh, because the, uh, tax law can change. I mean, I remember picking up a book for a real estate practice book that was made by the same publisher that we use for this book. And I forget what edition it was. It was like maybe the second or the third edition. And I'm reading through the tax section. I'm going, that hasn't been like that in years. You know, if you went to the library and picked that book up and started reading it, you would be so totally ill-advised. I mean, especially with the sale of a personal residence, that has radically changed over the years. So that's why, you know, you really want to make sure you have the most up-to-date stuff. And that's coming directly, if you will, from the IRS. 
but they just want to make you aware of the fact that there are certain things that are different between California and, and the feds. So it says, California state income tax laws tend to conform to the federal laws in most respects. There are, however, several important income tax exceptions to the list. Just to make you aware, there may be more or less at the time that you get ready to do it. Number one, the state does not tax Social Security benefits. The feds do. Uh, the state has no capital gains rate, just ordinary income. Now, capital gains rate is good because what it is is it's a less of a rate on the sale of the property. So you want to be aware of that. Uh, the state does not allow tax breaks for IRA plans. Simple, and there's different IRA plans. state does not tax lottery winnings. So all we're trying to do is to say, if you know a rule or a law, you need to say, is this involving the state or is this involving the feds? Which one are you talking about? Okay, Really try to stay away from these, if you will, jailhouse lawyers that try to give you advice to get you in trouble. Next thing we want to do is talk about the kinds of things that you need to be aware of. Uh, the next thing that you want to think of when you're dealing with income taxes, too, is very important is are you talking about a personal residence or are you talking about an income piece of property? Don't get the laws mixed up. Don't do that. A personal residence has certain things that you're allowed to do. Uh, investment property has certain things that you're allowed to do. So the first thing you need to do is think, what am I talking about? Okay, when I apply that rule or that law, very critical. So the first thing they do is they talk about things that you can deduct on your income tax for a personal residence. And the things that you can deduct are mortgage interest on loans that you would have on deeds of trust. In other words, when you get a loan on a piece of property, the interest part, you can deduct that. Okay? That also includes, in many cases, if you have points. Remember, points that you pay on a loan are prepaid interest. Again, that's something that if you're going to get a loan, you want to be talking to the accountant and find out how to handle that, whether to pay the points up front, whether to include them in the loan, how you're going to do it. Second thing is property taxes are tax deductible. And the third thing is prepayment penalties. So if you have a loan on the property, like, for example, if you went out and got an equity line of credit to maybe, uh, I don't know, fix up the house or to buy a car or whatever you're going to do with it, and it says to they tell you, listen, if you pay this loan off before you've had it for three years, you're going to pay a prepayment penalty. If you do pay that, that is tax deductible. Okay, so you want to keep that in mind. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, going from there, okay, um, okay, sell the residence. Okay, so the thing you want to keep in mind, what you can't do with a personal residence on your normal income taxes, you can't do things like say, I just put in, I just fixed the sprinkler system, you know, and I spent $300. Can I take it off my income tax? No. <laughs> uh, I just painted the inside of the house. Can I take it off my income taxes? No. Okay. So you want to realize that those things you cannot take off your income taxes. I'm talking about if you were operating on a regular basis now, there are also laws that have to do with whether you're getting the house ready to sell and a lot of other things and whether you're moving or what. But the fact is, on a regular basis, you cannot go to the IRS and say, you know what, I put a new lawn in this past year. Can I take it off my income taxes? No, you can't. Okay? I put a new roof on. No, you can't. Okay? So it's only, as it stands right now, is your uh, mortgage interest, 
your property taxes and your prepayment penalties that you can take off. Okay, and then again, if you're going to finance or refinance, know what the points are and how you can deduct those. Um, the biggest thing that people usually get themselves all wrapped around the axle and not understanding is the sale of the property. If you sell your personal residence, personal means that you live in it. You don't rent it out. You live there. Okay, so if you have a personal residence. What happens is that when you sell your personal residence, the seller can deduct up to $250,000 or $500,000 of married of any capital gain. So what this means is that if you had a house that you bought for, I don't know, $200,000 and you turned around and you sold it two years later for $400,000, that $200,000 gain, if you're a single individual, you pay no, you can take that money and put it directly in your pocket. You can go out and buy a boat, an airplane, a motorhome, or whatever, and never pay any tax on that. That's a very, very important fact to remember. Okay? If you happen to be married, you can go up to $500,000 of a gain. So in other words, if you bought that property for $200,000 and you sold it for, you know, another, what, $700,000, that none of that would be gained. In other words, you could put that in your pocket and use it, buy another house. There's no requirements that you reinvest it or buy another house or upsize or downsize. That's just your money. Okay, very, very important. But remember that's your personal residence. Also remember another thing too that's important is remember that you when we get start talking about that you it has to be your personal residence for two years. Remember that also means that if you're married that it's your spouse has to have lived there for two years. And I'll talk about that in a second. So anyway, it goes on from there, and it says, let me see, uh, federal income tax laws allow the taxpayer to exclude $250,000 a gain for each individual, 500 married. Uh, if on the title, this benefit may only be used once every two years on the residence. So you can use it two years, and then another two years, another two years, Okay. Uh, very important here, it says, while the law allows the deduction once every two years, you must reside in the home for two out of the last five years to qualify. What that means is, is that you may very well fall into one of those situations where I move into the house, I live there, I live there for maybe a year in, I don't know, a year and two months, my job requires me to be transferred to someplace else, I move there, I live there for, say, six months or a year, and then I move back and live in the house again. I have to have lived it two years out of the last five in order to qualify for it. I would say that that probably, the reason for that is because that happens to people, especially like military people. You know, they, they move, they come back. They move, they come back, or job requirements, okay? That's what we're talking about here, to qualify for it. In other words, if you live in the home for a year, then you rent it out for three years, you would have to move back in for another year in order to take advantage of the tax break. And you may say, well, how do I prove that? Well, it has to do with like, you know, what, you know, you, you know, the minute that normally people rent it out, they start taking tax deductions on the property. So, and they're filing income tax returns. So all of that stuff is there. Okay. Plus it has to do with where is your driver's license at? All those kinds of things. That's how they find out. It says the only way to deduct a loss on a personal residence is to turn that property into an income-producing property first by renting it. So in other words, if you bought a house 
for $300,000, say, two years ago. Let's say you bought it for $300,000, and the market was really hot. And then you turned around and you decided, or something happened, you had to sell it. You had to sell it because of job change, divorce, death, or whatever. And you sold it, and hey, you bought it for three hundred thousand, but you can't get three hundred thousand right now because the market's off. So you sold it for two fifty. You can't deduct that. You can't take that off your income tax. Okay, if you've lost money on it, if it's personal residence. Um, okay. So okay, that's that's very important. The other thing I want to point out, and I, I I saw an example of this in the newspaper underneath in the Sacramento Bee under Robert Bruss, one of the uh, real estate columnists section is that remember that the people, you know, a lot of times which people don't realize is that they want, you have to have lived in the house as your primary residence. Let me give you an example where maybe you could get yourself tripped up on this a little bit. And this was in a, like I said, it was in an article, it was in a, uh, a column in the Sacramento Bee. And that is, is we have a lot of people that get married. And what happens is they then end up getting divorced. And they tend to live separately. So you could have, for example, where, uh, say, a person, a guy, has a house. He's lived in it for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. So he's met all the rules. It's his house, his primary residence. He's lived there out of the two of the last five years. It's his house. And maybe he's been single. He's lived there with his family, raised the kids, whatever. And then he meets somebody. And usually when people meet each other, and they decide that they're going to get married, especially when they're later on in life. You have where the husband maybe is married. He's got a couple children. The new wife, she's married. She's got a couple children. All of a sudden, the house that he has is too small. It's not big enough. They need more bedrooms. So they say, you know what? When we get married, what will happen is what we're going to do is we'll sell the wife's house or we'll sell the husband's house, and we'll turn around and we'll buy a bigger home so that we now have four bedrooms instead of two, for example. What happens is, is that that deduction means that the person, if you've gotten married and say, for example, the wife moved in and lived there for six months, that you're not eligible for that deduction. What has to happen is she has to move in and live there for the two years in order for that to be deductible. Now, for example, maybe she doesn't own a house. Maybe she's been renting or an apartment or a home and she's moved in. And they say after a while, they say, hey, this, this is too small. We got to move. Well, you have to keep in mind she has to live there the two out of the last five years, okay? So don't so keep that in mind if you're if you're in that situation you're getting ready to sell the house and thinking you're going to get five hundred thousand dollars because you're married. No, you still have to meet that lived in the place requirement, okay? Next, uh, next thing we want to talk about is income producing properties. Income-producing properties, typically for a lot of us, the first ones that we typically run into is where we decide, uh, for a lot of people, it has to do with maybe they wanted to sell, they wanted to get rid of the house. And, for, for example, today, as I speak today, you know, people want to sell, but they can sell and get enough money out of it. And so they say, you know what, I'm either going to sell at a loss or, hey, you know what, why don't I hold on to the house and rent it out? I'll rent it out, I'll hold on to it for a few years, and then I'll sell it when the market gets better. All of a sudden, you find out five, six, seven years later, you're in the real estate business. And the question is, is what can you deduct on your taxes if it's a rental piece of property? Well, you can deduct the mortgage interest, okay? You can deduct the property taxes. You can deduct the prepayment penalties. But you also 
because it's a rental, you can deduct the operating expenses and depreciation for improvements. Now, let me just talk about what operating expenses are. Operating expenses means things that are normally happening on a regular basis, a daily basis. So an operating expense might be something like a gardener coming in to mow the front yard, a gar uh, somebody coming in to clean the pool, uh, possibly if you're paying the water or the sewer bill, which some of us do, you know, like I've done that in the past where I've said, you know what, don't worry about it, water the lawn, I'll take care of the water and sewer, I don't want the lawn burning up. Uh, it might be things like maybe cleaning the carpet, painting some of the rooms inside the house, replacing the garbage disposal, the dishwasher, things like that. Those are operating expenses. Things that are not operating expenses are things that are capital improvements, major improvements. Things like if I have a brand new roof put on a house, the old roof taken off and a new one put on, that's an operate, that is a capital improvement. That's usually a very large improvement. Uh, in that case, what I do is I can't write that off in one year. I can't go to my accountant and say, guess what? I just put a new roof on the house. I spent $15,000. Can I write it off? No, you can't. You have to depreciate it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Some of the other kinds of capital improvements you may have, like is if you recarpet the whole inside of the house. Uh, things like if you replace the heat pump, you know, or the heating or the air conditioning system, or you remodel the house and take the entire kitchen out and put another kitchen and countertops, uh, things like that, or you replumb the house because it's, you know, the plumbing is not really good, or you completely rip the lawn out and put a new lawn in. Those are capital improvements. What you have to do with the capital improvement is you have to take the value of what you bought the property for, which is called the basis, and you have to add those improvements to it. So, for example, if I bought a house, for example, for $400,000, let's say, the only thing that I can depreciate is the buildings. I can't depreciate the land. So what I have to do is take the land away, and what's left is the building itself. So let's say the building's worth 300000 If all of a sudden I have to turn around and replace the roof, I have to add the value of the new roof to that basis for the house. So now what that means is if the basis is 300000 I have to add the roof, which is now, and if it was 15000 now the basis is 315000 Okay, so major improvements have to be added to the value of the house. Now, how you expense those is that you're allowed to, to depreciate those every year. And what depreciation essentially means is says, you know what, instead of you writing off the whole amount, what's going to happen is that roof is not going to wear out in one year. The house is not going to wear out in one year. What we're going to do is we're going to allow for a gradual depreciation, depreciating of the value of the property. And the way that we do that, according to the Internal Revenue Service, is what we do is we're allowed at a minimum of 27 and a half years to allow to depreciate that. So, for example, if I had a value of a property that's $300,000 and I chose to depreciate it over 30 years, I'd take the 30 divided into 300000 which would mean that I could write off on my income taxes $10,000 per year. That's how I expense that stuff out. Okay, That's called depreciation. How does that work? What happens is, is whenever you acquire a piece of property for the purposes of renting it out, whether it's through the purchase or somebody gives it to you or it's left to you or you decide to take your personal residence and put it into production, 
What you do is at the beginning of the year, or whenever you decide to do this, you call your accountant up. You tell them what you're going to do. The accountant will probably ask you to get some documentation to show what the value of the property happens to be. They may very well even discuss the fact of maybe needing an appraisal, depending upon what kind of property you're looking at. And the purpose of that is to establish the value of the land and the value of the buildings. Then it's going to be your accountant who's got the knowledge that's going to tell you how much you can depreciate it each year. Also, it's going to tell you what you can do with those new improvements. So, for example, when I get ready to put in new carpet in the house or to put a new heating system in or a new air conditioning or a new roof, what I do is I pick the phone up and I call Steve. That's my accountant. I say, Steve, this is what am I going to do. Can I write it off or can I? do I have to capitalize it? Most of the time it's capitalize it, which means add it. Okay, but I call the accountant. The accountant takes care of that for me. Okay, that's why it's, and I want, and I want him to do that because I want him to stay out of jail, if you will. It's to get, keep away from problems. Anyway, so depreciation, that's what depreciation happens to be. The next thing that they talk in here, just as an overview, is something called a sale and a leaseback. Uh, the way that I see advantage, a sale and a leaseback, the example I like to use is that in many cases you can have companies that, well, one of the areas where you see this, you see a company that wants a specific kind of a building. And what I'm thinking about is somebody like a Lowe's, Raleigh's, Home Depot, Target, somebody, Price Club, or what we call Costco now, they have a need to have a building laid out a certain way. And what happens is they go in and they acquire the land and they build the building. So they tie up all their money in the building and all the money in the land. But what they get as a result of that is the building they want. Because maybe if they drive all over Sacramento in the area where they want to put that building, they can't find anything that exists. So they acquire the land and build it. Now what you think about is now they got three, four, five, six, ten million dollars tied up in this building. Well, what they do then is that in order for them to get the building, the money back out of the building and still use it is that they find somebody who's a large investor who could be an individual, a pension plan, an insurance company, whatever, that says, I will buy the building from you as long as you agree to lease it back from me. Now, the advantage of that is that the owner or the, the large company now has sold the property and gets the cash back out again that they can go out and use to build another building, hire people, run an advertising program, do whatever they want to do. So that's the advantage they get. The person that's acquiring it is getting, hopefully, a good, solid tenant that's going to have a vested interest, that's going to stay in that building for a whole bunch of years and pay rent without any problems at all. So that's the advantage to both sides. Again, that's a sale leaseback. Uh, okay. Let me see if there's, I'm just looking through here, um, looking to see if we have anything else. Uh, what they do is they give you a little bit of an example here on the sale of a property. Uh, just to give you an idea, I think this is important for you to take a look at this. This has to do with the sale of a uh, investment piece of property. So what we do is we have a property that we bought. This is just to give you an idea how this works. We have a property that we bought. Let me see if I can make this a little bit larger. 
for $500,000. That's our cost basis. By the way, the accountant helps you establish that. Because in the cost basis, that's your acquisition cost, which is including the building and all the costs, the escrow fees, the title fees, the broker fees, all those things to get that building. Okay, so that you're establishing that. The next thing it's showing here is that during the period of time that you own the building, you put $200,000 worth of improvements in, which who knows, whatever that happens to be, new roofs. Uh, pool, whatever it happens to be, but those are some kind of improvements. Now the property is worth $700,000, okay? What's happened is, is over the period of time that you've owned the building, you and your accountant have decided and come up with a depreciation schedule in which you've owned it for whatever number of years that you've been able to take off your income taxes, $30,200 in depreciation that you've written off. One thing it doesn't tell me here is it doesn't tell me what the rate is. I don't know whether that, how many years that's over, but it's saying that you've depreciated. That means for income tax basis, you have a basis of in your property of $669,000. That's your basis. Okay? Because every time you write something off on depreciation, it reduces your basis. Now you sell the property for a million dollars. You have sales expenses of 32500 from whatever. Okay? Commissions, escrow fees, title fees, whatever. You have an adjusted sales price of 967500 That's what you, that's what your adjustment is. You take away from that what your basis is, which is this up here, and that shows you your gain. That's what you're going to be subject to capital gains tax. Okay? At that point, then, whatever the gain is on federal, you would pay that percentage to the government, or uh, to the federal government, and if you had, and whatever, however you would calculate it for the state. Whatever's left after you pay the taxes is your money, okay? That's how you calculate the gain. So that's very important that you know that. Another thing they talk about here is something called real estate installment sales, okay? Just very quickly, what this is is recognition of the fact that if you sell the property, in the year that you sell that property, all of the income taxes are due and payable. But if you can spread the gain that you've gotten over a number of years, then it can be taxed in the subsequent years as time goes by. So that's sometimes a reason why when somebody is selling a piece of property, they may say, this is the time, the best time for me to sell it, or maybe the property's a pain in the neck or a headache and I want to get rid of it and i got somebody that's willing to buy it. But if I receive the gain this year, it's going to kill me on income taxes. So what I want to do is I want to receive a certain amount of money now and then the rest at some other future date. Or I may receive it over a period of years so that I reduce the amount of gain. Another example would be maybe, hey, I'm going to retire in a couple of years and I'll be at a lower rate. Maybe it's better for me then to pay the income taxes on it, okay, because I'm not earning as much regular income. So that's what we're talking about there. The uh, One of the last few things that we talk about is something called... Uh, Tax-deferred exchanges. This code that we use called the 1031, that just happens to be the Internal Revenue Service code. Uh, by no means do we have the time to go over all of this in any kind of a detail. Plus, this happens to be a, a uh, if you will, a, a huge uh, area uh, uh, that you need to... In fact, we have people that are called exchange facilitators that specialize in this area. But suffice it to say, and I'm going to make this as simple as possible, and I'm making this really simple, 
is that if you remember when you took that property and we calculated that gain, what happened is is that you had to pay income taxes on that gain in that year, which could really have eaten up the money you earned. So you sit there and you go, is there some way that I can help pay less taxes? Because what I, you know, how could I do that? The point here is that if you decide that you want to stay in the real estate investment or area, you want to stay in real estate investment, in other words, take the money and put it into another property, then you can do what we call an exchange. And the easiest way I try to explain this is, for example, if I happen to have like a duplex and it happened to have, let's say, $50,000 worth of equity when I got finished figuring it all out, getting ready to sell it, I could turn around and say I want to use that duplex as a down payment on another property. That's kind of the way you're thinking about it. Now, I'm leaving out a lot of the details. Uh, the problem is, is that the way the law was originally constructed is that I'm trying to find somebody else that has, you know, an apartment house that I want to buy and they want to take my duplex. As you well know, that could be very difficult to find somebody like that. So what I do is I structure the exchange with somebody that knows what they're doing where I actually put the property up for sale. I establish an account, an escrow account where that money's going to go. There are certain internal revenue rules that I have to follow, and if I don't follow them, I'm not gonna, it's not going to work. I have to follow them, so I have to have really good, solid advice. And the concept is, is when the sale proceeds come in, they go into this escrow account that I can't touch. There's a certain period of time. There's certain time frames in which I have to get certain things accomplished. I have to also identify properties that I'm going to exchange into. And I also have to finish this thing off within a certain period of time. So what I'm, I'm saying is there's a set of rules I have to follow. If I don't follow those rules, then I could be where the Internal Revenue Services say, you didn't follow what we told you to do, so consequently you're going to have to pay taxes on all of it. We're not going to treat it as an exchange. We're going to treat it as a sale. Okay. Also, that money, when it comes out, I can't touch it. I can't go in and say, you know, give me the money and let me hold on to it for a little while and then put it into the account. I, that has to go directly into the account. So this is a way that I can defer. Notice it didn't say get away with, never pay. It said defer. That's what it is. I'm deferring it to some later date. Okay? So anyway, we're pretty close to the end now. This is an area that's very, very interesting. I, uh, again, I, I want you to realize that you not should, should not be giving tax advice to somebody. What you need to be do, need to have is that you're aware that there's a consequence so that you can say to a client, listen, you need to talk to somebody. I can't advise you, but you may be doing something that can get, you're going to have to pay some taxes. And also, if you're working with certain uh, advisors that you're working in helping them market their property, that you understand what's going on in the process. With that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here the next time for the next show. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.